Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is The Guardian. Those contrasts between light and dark, seriousness and playfulness are super important for me and I never let anyone get too comfortable in any one area before I flip it. Hello, I'm Zoya Patel. I'm a writer and editor and this is Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. Today I'm talking to author, poet, playwright and artist Omar Musa. His latest book, Killanova, is a body of poetry, but it's also a body of visual art inspired by a printmaking technique of woodcutting, which he learnt in Borneo. Omar uses both art forms to explore themes including racism, colonialism and the climate crisis. These are big issues, but Killanova doesn't feel like a heavy book. Instead, it's at times funny, playful and even cheeky. While race, religion and inequality are central issues in Killanova, Omar presents them in a much less confrontational way to his previous works. So I wanted to talk to Omar about how he uses play and joy to talk about what are otherwise serious and heavy issues, and how he experiences darkness and light at the same time. So you grew up in Queanbeyan, which is about a 20-minute drive from Canberra. Can you tell us about the Queanbeyan of your childhood? I loved going down to the river, playing around with my friends. There was a huge paddock behind the flat block that I grew up in. And so the natural world surrounded us. But I guess I grew up in a flat block surrounded by people from all around the world who were trying to forge a life for themselves in Australia. People from Southeast Asia, from the subcontinent, um, people from the Pacific Islands, and then the Balkans, and a lot of Indigenous people as well. You know, the Queanbeyan of my childhood, it was a very working class place. It was a place that was the butt of jokes in Canberra. Um, Also, I guess in the 90s, um, there was uh, a lot of drug use, uh, domestic violence, alcoholism. But it's a hard place for me to get my head around, even though through my writing, I've been trying to capture Queanbeyan since I started writing, because I always had this view or this idea, maybe a misguided one, I don't know, that Queanbeyan was some type of microcosm of the rest of Australia, because, you know, it's city living, country benefits, as the motto goes. <laughs> it's a it's a mix of people from all around the world. It's not quite country, not quite city. It's kind of outer suburbia. And it represents something that you don't often see in the mythology, like the grand mythologies of Australia, when people are describing the kind of surf town or the, or the outback. 
people often forget to look into the Australia where most of us live, a place like Queanbeyan. So your dad is from Malaysia. How did your parents approach raising a family in Queanbeyan? Uh, There weren't many Malaysians around. There weren't all that many Muslims, actually, at that time. It's different to now. And I came from an artistic family, an educated family. Both of my parents had studied at NIDA in Sydney. My mum did the director's course. My dad also did the director's course, but he was an actor and a poet back in Malaysia. And so, yeah, I kind of was in between worlds in that way um, because Queanbeyan is known as such a working class place and I was surrounded by that. But at the same time, I was really, really privileged in that my mum was an arts journalist. She ran a small magazine called Muse Arts Magazine. And so we were always broke when I was a kid, but I was so privileged in that we got free tickets to go to galleries, the theatre, and, you know, in the car rides home, we were always discussing what we had seen. And so that was pretty important to my formative years, I think. How do you think that upbringing influenced your art or the way that you create art yourself? As I said, my father was a poet, but his type of poetry was very devotional. He's very, very religious. And his poetry was quite florid, ornate, and it was performed as well. That was really important. From an early age, my father would say, in Malaysia and Indonesia, poetry is almost part of the daily life. You know, he and his friends would make up poems, puntuns when they were growing up in the shanties. But then that was counterbalanced by my mother, who is much more of a clear-eyed rationalist and a journalist. So she was always saying, distill, 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 simplify, simplify, simplify. Uh, whereas my urges sort of tended more towards that <laughs> florid style that my that my dad had. Um, and so there was that kind of balance that I think is still present in my work. Um, at times it's really, really, really boiled down and sculpted, but then at other times I give myself free range um, to explore that more ornate uh, lyrical style of poetry. So before we get to your latest book, Killanova, I want to briefly talk about your first novel, Here Come the Dogs. So it was published in 2014 and it was a really big critical success, long-listed for the International Dublin Literary Award and the Miles Franklin. And a review in The Guardian at the time said Here Come the Dogs was about race, identity and the unrealised dreams of disempowered Australians. What do you remember about yourself when you were writing the book? Yeah, well, this is an example of talking about some of my past work that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, even though it's probably the most popular of the things that I've put out there to the world. And maybe because it comes from such a raw place, Um, there's a real depth of emotion there, but the emotions pretty much all verge on the darkness and almost tend towards nihilism in certain spots. Although I tried to bring this kind of humanistic redemptive element to it as well. That was that was important. And sometimes I forget that because I think the place I was in at the time was a very dark one. And that's definitely reflected in the story and in the language. Um, I was lost to hard drug and alcohol use, a feeling of utter confusion and rage at the Australia that I lived in and confusion at my place in the world. And I think um, that refracts through the three main characters who are each of them furiously trying to figure out where they are in Australia. And so from what I remember, because I haven't looked at it in so long, um, one of them decides to 
set roots down in the Australia that he knows. He sees it as ugly, but it's a place he knows and that he has to maybe learn to love. Another one of the characters decides to reject Australia and move back to the homeland as he sees it. And then the third character decides to burn it all to the ground. And I think that so many children of migrants have these similar responses to Australia. And so I guess that's what I was trying to get across in that book. And I guess one of the things that makes me uncomfortable about the book looking back now is that it is so overtly macho and masculine and it's dealing with a world of violent young men or at least men who express themselves through violence and are very uncomfortable around women. And one of the major critiques of the book was along these lines and certain people confused the politics of the characters with my politics. Emma, a lot of your poetry is written to be performed and we're lucky we're going to hear you perform some of your poems throughout our conversation today. And we've asked you to share the poem Capital Letters, which is one of your earlier pieces. So how did that work come about? I was asked to speak at TEDx at the Sydney Opera House and I knew I was going to do a poem that was pretending to be a TEDx talk and I wanted to do it about my beloved hometown, Queanbeyan, New South Wales, and linking into what we were talking about before, put those stories on the stage of one of Australia's grandest kind of artistic institutions. I love that idea that I would be representing this place which is out of metro (laughs) underneath the white sails of the Opera House and also I want to celebrate hip-hop culture. And part of what I've tried to do is bring these stories to the level of myth. And I thought there would be no better place to do it than on the stage of the main hall of the Opera House. Okay, take it away. I knew none of their government names back then. Back then, some of the most wondrous people I knew were self-destructive, talented vandals who took to relationships with mallet and saw. But there was beauty in the streets. You could see it everywhere. In fishtails and donuts, the silver cursive that slanted off tyres, in spray can fumes and opals of oil, in kickflips and crossovers, cuts and kebab shops, in sneakers that cluster hung like grapes on power lines. And in that, in that something... Could they see it too? The generation who printed a crystal font on its bloodstream, the entrepreneur with check pistol and silencer as thick as a ballerina's wrist. You see, this was the Australia I saw. No Don Bradmans, no Pavlovas, no coastline etched in shale, no white sails of the opera house, no. These were suburbs, inscribed on scarified earth, an alphabet of exiles far from lands of birth. I'm talking, I'm talking pittance workers and remittance senders, traditional custodians and the kids of immigrants. You know the ones, the ones heard about, but not from. The ones talked at, but not to. The ones treated as if very, very small. In other words, us. Each day, 
like smoke. I unwound up the stairs of the flats. I smelled the oils and spices of many lands. I heard many tongues. In flat seven, a Macedonian man said, Hey, shopresh, brother, as he massaged his elbow. The Tongan woman in flat 16 said, Maloi lele, as she prepared for her third night shift in a row. And my mother and father said, Assalamu alaikum, when I entered flat 26. I learned that in Malay culture, a storyteller is named Panglipur Lara, a dispeller of worries, a reliever of sorrows. This is also the name given to a garden of delights where all cares are lost. And what delights in stories, what insights, what power to give voice to the world's inside. But you and I know there are many types of stories. I heard carnivorous tales loped down gentrifying streets, the hiss of talkback serpents, the whistle of go back to where you came from. I lost faith and leapt into the whirlpool. They were scribbled hours, pilled and powdered, full of sex and camaraderie. Part of me knew on days like this the timer ticked, history slipped, we skipped words like stones from our hands, words that could never be retrieved, like love, like hate, like us, like goodbye. Yet somehow, somehow I found that something, like a magic key connecting ancient and new. I found it on beats, breaks, tapes and acetate, unordained lion hearts on thrones self-made. Do you hear? Do you hear what I'm talking about? I'm talking about Tupac's and Lauren Hills, Rakim's, Nas's, Kendrick Lamar's, public enemies siphoning Al-Haji Malik El-Shabazz, Jim Blas, Deltas and Brad Struts, Deaf Wish casts and Coolisms, Hilltop Hoods and Horror Shows, I'm talking one fours, Remy's and Lissy's. I'm talking Zoya Patel's. Do you hear? Do you hear what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the numberless underground kings and queens who taught us the power of our voices, of non-conformity, that each lyric, each windmill, each scarred 45 or fan of paint from a nozzle was a story aching to be told, unfolding before us the fractals of cosmos and starlight, a world all of a sudden unbearably bright. So linger now. Linger with me. Consider that somehow, despite the broken bottles and tattered bigotry, we could still own that something. Something airborne, something gold shot. Beings arranged in a calligraphy of rhythm and rebellion, people with so much fucking resilience. It's impossible not to smile. It's impossible not to smile. So let it play. That's something. Let it play. Weave your stories into shining nets. Drag them behind zigzag and decks, zooped up cars, trains and trams through streets and sunsets. Trawl for the things you thought you'd lost. Because you, me, 
us. We are more than statistics. We are more than misfits. We are more than your dreams are unrealistic. This is the paint that drips from every brick, the spirit that soothes the weary limb. This is the new scripture of our lives, spelled skyscraper high in capital letters. Bold. Thank you, Omar. That was beautiful. But i got to say, I have heard you perform capital letters before, and that is not the version that I've heard in the past. So um, I take it it isn't the same version that you performed at the Opera House 10 years ago either. How has performing capital letters changed over time? I mean, something like that, because I did write it almost 10 years ago, a lot of the references are a bit older because I grew up in sort of more the mid-2000s hip-hop world. And so that's one of the things that performance affords you is that you can keep it a bit more up to date and then also reference people that are sitting right in front of you. Uh, and and I really I really like that. You know, I, I try to be so well prepared with my performances that then I do have the room to breathe. Um, what it is, it's, it's like a release valve. You build it up, you build it up, you build up the pressure and then you have these little release valves, either using your flow, your phrasing, pauses or humour. And the humour is like a really important one for me as well um, because so much of my work is, is serious. On stage, in between poems, I like that kind of banter and that's something I've been able to finally put into the new book is a bit more of the humorous side of my personality. Let's now move on to your latest book, Killanova. So first of all, where did the title Killanova come from? <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty funny. It's um, I was asked to write a poem for the Melbourne Planetarium about space and I misheard this word Kilonova, K-I-L-O, which is a, a huge cataclysmic cosmic event where two neutron stars crash into each other and create such a big explosion that it sends debris through space and time. And it happens like 130 million years ago. So that now the gravitational waves that it that a kilonova sends out are barely perceptible, but they're all around us. And they're so tiny, these ripples, that they can even pass through solid matter. And so I decided with the book to kind of use it as a larger metaphor for these kilonovas that we all have in our lives, whether it's some type of family trauma or personal trauma, colonization, these sort of things. Um, but it was pretty funny because I think it was one of my readers who pointed it out to me. I didn't bother to check that this wasn't a real... I just assumed, oh, it's a Kilanova because it k- kills everything in its path. It's just ridiculous. And then finally someone pointed it out to me and said, you, you realise it's not actually a real word, right? It's Kilonova. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, 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 I knew that. I knew that. And so in the final or maybe the third last poem in the book, I put the real word Kilonova in sort of as a nod to the reader to be like, oh, yeah, I know what the actual word is, whereas for most of it I had no idea. (laughs) I love that. So you just touched on some of the themes that you explore in the book. I'd like to hear you read the poem Fake Islands from Kilonova. There are fake islands in the South China Sea, military bases on reclaimed ground, a runway on an atoll, a propeller jeweled in salt, a whim of lava ringed by tides disquiet. Migratory birds bear witness to the weft and warp of borders, the loom of nations, the pedal turns the wheel, 
The truant threads, if any, are fraying, an inconsistent tapestry. From the deep, fish look upwards, see the blurred crucifix of a bird or fighter jet, a shaking lens, the ocean. Sometimes I feel like an atoll. Structures are built on me I did not consent to. But perhaps at times I invited them. And of course, I do the same, floating on my little raft, looking for land. That which you choose to portray, inviting fire tips of coral, the crescent of sand so alluring for beach-seeking bottle, is never what it seems. Words can be fake islands, people too. I should have been a dancer. Where you say words can be fake islands, people too. It speaks to the kind of impossibility of words and the limitations of language. What makes you still write when you feel those limitations so clearly? I think maybe if you find joy in that, as opposed to seeing as something that that gives you depression or anxiety, um, and maybe it's some type of beautiful frustration. Maybe in the last poem, I sort of say, behind every map, there is an invisible map, and behind every you, there is an invisible you. Behind every poem, there is an invisible poem. And then I say, the search is an impossibility, but it's an imperative. And so it's the type of thing that we as writers will continue to do. You're never quite going to get there, but maybe it's one of those naff things like, oh, the joy is in the journey rather than the destination. It's kind of true maybe uh, with the writing. And when you realize that, that there's never going to be some piece of work where you plant your flag in the sand and you say, I finally accomplished it. You know, it's finding joy in the process. And that's what woodcuts brought back for me was finding that joy and playfulness in the process of art making. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Zoya here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Book It In with Omar Musa. Just before we jump back in, I want to remind you to follow and subscribe to Book It In on your podcast app. This means you'll get all our episodes when they come out. Okay, back to the conversation with Omar. Killanova kind of combines the visual um, and the literary art form. Tell me about the actual process, though, of creating these woodcuts that have then been put into prints and put into this book alongside your poetry. What's the technical process of the actual woodcutting? Right, so I use MDF 
wood, pretty much just compressed sawdust, buy it cheap at, at Bunnings. My dear friend and mentor, Eric Lost Control, a punk rocker from Sandakan in Borneo who taught me how to do this, basically gave me two wood cutting tools. One is a V-shape. It, it carves a narrow, deep groove in the wood. The other one was a U-shaped tool, more of a, a shallow, wide cut. And so he basically gave me these two tools when I asked him if he could teach me. And he said, they have these different effects. Just remember to carve away from your hand so you don't you know, cut your hand up. And he showed me some scars on his fingers. And then he just said, carve what you feel. And so it's relief printing. So whatever you carve is white. Whatever you don't gets rolled with ink. And then that's left that solid block of color. And then it also prints in reverse. So if you use words, you have to carve them backwards. And so then when it comes to printing it, the Bornean way, the Southeast Asian way is to press it to the cloth or paper using your feet. So stamping on it with your feet and then pulling it back. And then there's this kind of revelatory aspect to it because you never know what you're going to get. But yeah, I, I just, I learnt in a place called Tamparuli, which is about an hour and a half from Kota Kinabalu, the capital city of Sabah, the eastern state of Malaysian Borneo, where my dad's from. How did you actually get to the point of learning how to woodcut? Like what led you to that moment? I went on this crazy journey in Borneo. So I went to the Indonesian side of Borneo, Kalimantan, for the first time, this place called Samarinda on the east coast. And I took the public ferry from Samarinda right to the heart of the island, sleeping on the deck of the public ferry, just chatting with all the locals who were, who were going up and down the river, whether they were workers or people who lived in other islands who were coming back to their village. And then when I got as far as I could go on the public ferry, I saw all the beautiful old longhouses where they'd have these animal spirits carved into the beams. I'd, I'd just sit out the front of the of a local shop and people would see that I was a, a foreigner and we'd just get chatting and I'd work on my Indonesian. And what happened next? I crossed back over the border to Malaysian Borneo and ended up going to this Tamparuli Living Arts Centre, meeting Eric Lost Control and members of Pangrok Sulap. So what is Pangrok Sulap? Pangrok Sulap is a collective of punk rock musicians and environmental activists in Sabah, uh, the eastern state of Malaysian Borneo. And um, Pangrok is the Malayanization of punk rock. Sulap is a farmer's resting hut. Uh, that's a I think it's in the Kadazan Dusun language. Most of them are of that ethnic group from up in the mountains. And how did your encounter and your relationship with Pangrok Sulap influence Kilanova? I was obviously influenced by the punk rock protest DIY style of punk rock Sulap, but it felt like it would be false of me to use their type of slogans and exactly their type of imagery when I'm not on the front line um, as an environmental activist. And so I wanted to do it in my own way by using scraps of poetry and then little stories, family stories, so that I could engage with the feeling or the motivation behind what they do, but do it in my own way. And in a similar way, because I was born and raised in Australia, while I have the permission of my bloodline in certain ways, in other ways, again, it felt false for me to use traditional motifs. Uh, so I had to come up with my own iconography using pop culture references, emoticons, stuff from cartoons, um, 
stuff from rap music, Frank Ocean, like, you know, and sort of come up with my own iconography. Did the woodcutting kind of open the floodgates for the writing and the poetry as well? Yeah, it did because um, Eric told me to carve. He said, carve what you feel, brother. And I just wanted to make something beautiful because of all this work I've done focusing on the ugliness of human behaviour, violence, Australian racism. I guess I just wanted a bit of a, a relief from that. And I just wanted to carve something beautiful. And I thought, what's the most beautiful thing I know? And it was the Bornean clouded leopard, the smallest of all the big cats, the shyest, an ethereal creature. It even sounds like something not quite of this world. It's a clouded leopard. And I've never seen one in real life. I've only seen them in my dreams and and on YouTube. (laughs) And, And so I carved this little clouded leopard and then I wrote two lines of poetry, which were, when the loggers are away, the leopards will play. And so I make the images first. I carve the images. And as I'm doing that, because it takes a long time, you know, it's quite painful. Like my, my wrist gets sore, and my knuckles swell up and everything. And while I'm doing that, I'm distilling the poetry in my head. If woodcutting and poetry are the key forces behind this book, Borneo is is mm. the third. Um, and you do talk in the early parts of the book about the colonial history of Southeast Asia, which I imagine is actually new for a lot of readers as well, that particular part of the world. Why did you decide to start this book with that historical context? Originally, I had front-loaded the book with stuff about Australia and um, Australian politics and a landscape on fire. But I've dealt with that so many times. I think I was sort of leaning into a, weirdly, a kind of comfortable place. And I think it's really important as a writer to make yourself uncomfortable um, and to take risks. And I guess in a way I was responding to something I'd heard uh, years before where a writer in frustration had said, God, it's just impossible to get Australians to show any interest in Southeast Asia or Malaysia or Indonesia in particular um, and because she was having trouble getting a publishing deal for this incredible book she'd written. And so I think there was an element of fear at first about putting the stuff that was really at the heart of the book right up the front. And then I thought, you know what? This is a challenge that I'm going to set to myself and to the readers where I'm going to start it off with stories and pieces of history about a place that they might not know anything about, but trust in the quality of the art, the quality of the writing. And also it was like, well, if you don't like it, it's fine. You don't have to read my book, you know, but I'm living and dying on my own two feet as an artist, as a writer saying, I think this is interesting. And if I think it's interesting, it stands to reason that there will be other readers who find it interesting and like cool shit. Even though your father is from Malaysia, Did you worry that you were taking something from a cultural context where, you know, you might be seen as a foreigner? There was a tiny bit of fear around that where I was like, oh, well, people see me as some type of interloper and it hasn't been the case. People have been incredibly proud and even some of my friends over there said, you shouldn't be constantly asking us whether you have permission to do this. You have the permission of your bloodline, you know, you have the permission of your ancestors. And I'd felt that, but I also carried it quite heavily because I knew that this might be the first time a reader had been exposed 
to Borneo. So while there are elements of Bornean history and culture that I'm fascinated by, but perhaps would lend themselves to an exotic or romanticised reading, I tried to counterbalance that constantly with the realpolitik of what's going on over there with statelessness, corruption. Um, you know, there's the, the woodcut about the guy who's um, who's trying to quit Shabu, the, the ice. You know, crystal meth is a big problem over there as well. Did it feel like a risk, though, to delve into some of those more complicated social and economic issues in Borneo? I think it was... It was necessary, but you also have to know your limitations. So I bring up those questions. I'm not standing there pontificating, saying I'm some some type of gatekeeper. When I go to Borneo, I'm so clearly Australian. And there are points in it I decide to articulate that uncertainty or I say, I wonder what right I even have to comment. But it was also this kind of reorienting of the gaze that I was trying to do. When it comes to Malaysia and Indonesia, if people think about it at all, they usually think about the capital cities, Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta, and see those as the cultural hubs, whereas somewhere like Borneo has always been seen as a backwater in Malaysia as well, you know, and in Indonesia, although they're potentially going to move the capital of Indonesia to Borneo, so that's going to change things. Um, but I purposefully made sure that when I spoke about Malaysia, it was Eastern Malaysia, it was Borneo. When I spoke about Indonesia, it was the Banda Islands, it was Sulawesi. And so it was kind of, as one of my friends over there described, a reorienting of the Qiblat, which is, you know, the direction you pray as a Muslim. And so I, I don't necessarily fill it with that kind of religious resonance, but I liked that idea of reorienting where we face and what's at the centre of our cultural depictions. Uh, and so, yeah, I've always done that in Australia and I tried to do something similar with this when dealing with Malaysia and Indonesia. But Australia is also still a key yep. kind of theme throughout mm -hmm. the book and we were going to hear another reading from you, um, which is the poem Un-Australia. Let me tell you what's un-Australian, mate. Australia. It's time we shuffle this country off to deed poll, I reckon. Sign the papers, add two letters and rename it. Un-Australia. Un-Australia, an ill-advised artwork defined by negative space. We define selves by what they are not. Crude white lies told in blackface. Hey, come watch the parade in Un-Australia. Land of the fair-skinned, fairy-bred, fair-go. Let's put a shark net around the island, mummify childhoods in barbed wire, but please make sure it's 5,000 Ks out of sight, out of mind, so we can relish our snap crackle. Pop, 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 pop. Watch Fruity Loops bounce around the porcelain. Same colour as the flag we wipe our asses with when we take a plebiscite. Go postal in Australia, land of the culture wars. Get crop dusted by the heroin white noise of bureaucracy, stunned and softened up. Now jingo grenades bomb sense of self to phantom limb. You know the deal. Axe the tax. Stop the boats. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. 
Oi, it's un-Australia, where politicians roll up shirt sleeves and go panning in the mainstream. The river formerly known as Shit Creek. They'll sift up some nuggets of fool's gold, but not even a mining boom can buy compassion. They smear Vegemite vows on the toilet wall. Go on, have a read. That which was written, that which was hidden, punch drunk love left the bar flies smitten, drive it like you stole it, get in where you fit in, the brakes wear out when a nation's joy ridden. It's un-Australia, hear voices detonate from tuck shop to quarter acre block. Freedom of speech! Freedom of speech! But beware the fine print, my friends. All need not apply. If you're black, brown, Muslim, woman, queer, smart, proud, if you dare question a cross-eyed sacred cow, they'll twine newspaper headlines to a noose and lynch you from a daily telegraph poll. So welcome to Australia. I feel like there should be, like, cheering and applause. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really struggling with not being able to be like... <laughs> it's a ridiculous poem, that one. I've just, like, it's got more and more over the top as the years have gone on. I think I used to deliver it just, like, quite straight, and now it's just, like, crazy characters coming in and out, voices, sarcasm. It's quite fun. It's an interestingly situated poem as well because... You know, we've spoken about some of the other themes that you explore in this book, but this is a very politically charged poem and it's kind of deep within these deeper reflections that you have around Borneo and and our impact as humans and, you know, all these other um, issues that you explore. Why that poem and what does it mean to you for how it sits alongside the rest of this book? Hmm. It's the oldest poem in the book by quite a way and much more representative of the spoken wordy kind of declarative style. Um, on one level, I actually didn't want to have it in the book, but then I thought that it might situate quite nicely with the kind of bushfire-inspired poetry and art and reflections on the natural world and, and show the social side of that and this Australia that I see that is kind of combustible and has lost equilibrium in a whole lot of ways and then sort of flip it into the fantasy world of this place called Leopard Beach that I create in the book. Okay, so for people who haven't read Killanova, what's Leopard Beach? The poem Leopard Beach and the suite of artworks around this imaginary place is about fantasy and imagination and escapism. And when we were in the middle of the bushfires a couple of years ago, all I wanted to do was see blue sky. And so I would stare out my window, and then I started doing this during COVID as well. I would stare out my window and imagine that instead of just this suburban street, I was looking out onto a tropical island, very similar to places I've been in Borneo. And then I started thinking, wow, what what types of things would occur in my own Shangri-La, in my own uh, utopia. And I was like, well, firstly, you could see the sky. Secondly, it would be plastic-free. Thirdly, it would be 100% body positive. 
And so those contrasts between light and dark, seriousness and playfulness are super important for me. And I never let anyone get too comfortable in any one area before I flip it. And you've said before or described this book as being a like a user-friendly interface, but a complicated operating system mm-hmm. like an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? I think that's something that I've always aspired for in my poetry is something that is deceptively simple, but operates on a number of levels and layers. That's, again, the kind of juggling act of it. And so something that seems like it has a highly polished sheen, but it has depth when you drill down beneath it. So sometimes people might be led into thinking that I'm all style and no substance <laughs> with, with the work, but I like to think that if you sit with the work, you see that it's operating on a number of levels. And so that's one of the main motifs thematically in the book as well, is that there are so many layers of history beneath the earth that we walk upon every day. What would you say is the user-friendly interface? The playfulness of the imagery and the kind of childlike animal characters and scraps of conversation and even the kind of irreverent conversations with my my grandmother um, provide a doorway to talking about stuff that's a lot more serious. You know, there's there's this artwork in there that's about my grandma basically giving me shit because I was 35 and unmarried. But I use um, that artwork also as an opportunity to kind of comment on endangered species in Malaysia and then another poem to talk about the colonial history of Borneo and how that's impacted my family's life. Yeah, I think that's a direct summarising actually of exactly how I experienced the book with these little friendly seeming images where once you kind of read into it and dive a little bit deeper, you start realising what they signify or what they're linking to Mm. Um, and those complications that you're interested in, which, you know, are far ranging from kind of race and history of colonisation and colonialism and all the way through to mental health and, and feeling isolated. And even something as simple as food, right? You know, food and, and Malaysian cuisine has played a major part in so much of my work, but it's so easy for us as people in a diaspora to kind of romanticise that. And that's a beautiful connection that we have with our homelands, you know, because Uh, It's so visceral, like the smell of spices or that scent of coconut milk cooking on the stove. But then even behind something as as simple as nutmeg that you would sprinkle on a dessert, there's a whole colonial history of massacre and exploitation of the Dutch in eastern Indonesia. Something like a laksa, the seafood that goes into a laksa is often fished by exploited stateless workers, sometimes people even in slavery uh, in Southeast Asia. And, you know, we always talk about how cheap Malaysian food is. There's a reason for that. You know, they exploit Bangladeshi and Nepali workers so that it's so cheap for someone to buy a $1.50 laksa. So even behind something as seemingly joyful as a meal or a food item, There's all these layers of complexity that I think are worth drilling into 
and add resonance so that it's not just sort of hollow romantic cliches. If we circle all the way back to Here Come the Dogs, I do feel like there's a theme that runs across your work where you do explore some of these deeper issues around, you know, racism being one of them and class and inequalities. But Killanova does it in a more gentle or less confrontational way. Do you feel like since 2014 you've kind of found different ways to explore these issues, maybe to, you know, step away from the stereotype of the angry man of colour or the angry POC? Yeah, it's weird, right, because, like, there are probably many times I was that without realising it and played into a stereotype. There are other times where people have tried to project that onto me and I've always been very almost violently resistant to people categorising me or wanting to put me in a box and that's from many different sides, you know, that's hardcore right-wing conservative racists, well-meaning lefties, other Muslim people, you know, wanting me to be a spokesperson of some description when I felt very conflicted about my identity and my faith. Um, I think part of it is also the natural ageing process. I'm, I'm a lot more chilled and optimistic these days. I've done all sorts of work um, on myself to, I, I guess, um, in order to keep living, literally, I had to find a new source and place from which to create my art, a place of joy and love, because I used to think that you had to create from a place of darkness, self-destruction, depression, that the best work came from that place. And in order to keep living, I had to disprove that theory. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Because I used to think, I'm willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of good art, whether it's my relationships, my mental health, my liver, my life. I didn't care whether I died in the process of my, you know, I, I was like, as long as I leave something great. Whereas now I just realise no one cares. It's more important for me to live a good life and be happy within myself and like the person I see in the mirror than to create, quote, unquote, good art. And it turns out that being sober and clear-headed and a better version of myself, I create better art anyway, and I'm able to sculpt the words in a much more refined way. This is the best work I've done. Like maybe something like Here Come the Dogs resonates with more people because it's from that raw, angry place that some people can relate to, and there's a truth in that. But I think that this is by and the best poetry I've ever created. It's so amazing that you kind of walked into this space in Borneo feeling completely lost and unable to create the way that you wanted to, and then out of it has come this incredible book. And I am going to ask you for one final reading from Killanova, which is the poem Orchid. I used to think that writing was a matter of life and death. I used to think that a true writer diminishes with each piece of themselves they convert into words and send into the abyss. Not to suggest writing is a selfless or wholly generous act, more likely deluded, narcissistic and pathological. The bigger the work, I believed, the smaller you become, withering away, 
or more like falling away, petal by petal, until there is nothing left of you but the hot air of a hot day at the edge of a remote province. My knuckles swell from carving the orchid into this cheap wood, the glue, the carcinogens in my lungs, inhale art and destruction. I give birth to orchids sometimes, butterfly-coloured, they stream from my navel up into the pressurised dark of the forest. They jostle out of my mouth, budding at the corner of my eyes, tiny then blooming out large, untether, float up, ragged parasols amongst the knotted skeins and fighting jungle cats, yellow, mauve, pink and white. The most beautiful ones I cannot claim. They appear suddenly, perfectly, birthed as if by the air itself. So that's Omar Musa reading Orchid from his book, Killanova. To end our conversation, here are two book recommendations from Omar. I have been reading Sadvertising, a book of short stories by Enes Chehich, who's a great Aussie Bosnian author from Melbourne, who made this really kind of weird book of microfiction all related to the advertising industry, but kind of like um, surreal, satirical takes, a little bit in the vein of Edgar Carrot. And, and I thought it was just brilliant because it's kind of counterbalanced by these stories about meta Enes and about his family coming over from Bosnia. So it goes against what you might expect the quote-unquote migrant writer to write about, but then still dealing with those issues. And then the other thing I was going to recommend is a book of poems that influenced me heavily when I was writing this called Mama Amazonica by Pascal Petit, who's a British poet, and did this whole book of poems kind of about her relationship with her mother, who had a lot of serious mental health issues, and kind of imagines the Amazon as a big psych ward and all these different animals and plants as various characters in that psych ward. And it's just beautiful writing, just stunning. So there we go. Sadvertising and Mama Amazonica. Omar Musa is the author of Killanova, which is published by Penguin. This episode was produced by Bethany Atkinson Quinton, Alison Chan, Jane Lee and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. I'm Zoya Patel. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your podcast app. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.